0: This All-American Ruins audio adventure is brought to you by the Good Work Institute, inspiring and amplifying the collective power of people committed to just transition. Basically, just transition is a national framework for advancing systems change at every level. Good Work Institute focuses on supporting and cultivating good work. That is, supporting people and initiatives that are building regenerative economies and thriving communities while rejecting systems of oppression and extraction. Good work can take many forms volunteer work, in your business or job, in your family, in your community, or, for me, in this podcast, where we talk a lot about the nuanced and layered topics of American society and culture through the lens of the physical and metaphorical ruins of America. Good Work Institute is based in Kingston, New York, and works with people and initiatives throughout the colonized Tuck land, or the Hudson Valley. To learn more about the people at GWI and their programming, visit goodworkinstitute.org. Hi, my name is Blake, and welcome to Abandoned, the All-American Ruins podcast. Per usual, I have just a quick note before we get started. This is a bonus episode, so if you haven't listened to our show yet, I would suggest that you hit that pause button and go back to the beginning, to the prologue to Season 1, to Anna Moya, so you can get a sense of what we're doing here. I'm not a firm believer in serendipity, though when it does happen, I can certainly feel the magic of it. But what is magic? For me, simply put, it's the unexplainable stuff that happens as part of our regular day-to-day operations. When I go to call my mom, and as my hand moves to tap her name in my contacts list, the phone rings and it's her. Magic. I'm going to share one of those magical stories with you now, though it's not exactly my own. I've been releasing various bonus episodes between now and September just to keep your abandoned RSS feed wet. These episodes step outside the normal, all-American ruins, immersive sonic fantasy format. Collaborations with cool organizations like History Colorado, personal songwriting diaries inspired by various abandoned buildings I've explored, or episodes just like this one. A profile of one of my heroes in the urban exploration space. The magic part? Well, I didn't realize it until very recently, but for the last four years, this hero, one of the co founders of the Urbex juggernaut Atlas Obscura, has been my neighbor. Dylan Thuris, native of Minneapolis, Minnesota, consummate artist, devoted husband and father, deep thinker, and a lifelong explorer, is the man you're going to meet today, next, on Abandoned, the All American Ruins podcast. I'm sitting on a stoop on the oldest street corner in America, in Kingston, the original capital of New York, from 1777 to 1779, anyway, when Albany took the title. I'm chatting with a man I've never met before, Dylan Thuris. He's my neighbor. Well, sort of. Dylan lives two minutes down the road from me, which in the Hudson Valley is kind of unheard of. I'm a little bit nervous because Dylan, alongside Joshua Foer, is the creator behind one of my favorite digital spaces of all time. You might have heard of it. Atlas Obscura, the online magazine and travel company that catalogs unusual and obscure travel destinations through both platform and user-generated content. Usual and obscure like, I don't know,
1: abandoned buildings? My name is Dylan Thuris. I'm the co-founder and creative director of Atlas Obscura.
0: Dylan and Josh are heroes to me, and not just because they made this thing that evolved into a real thing, but because they get it. They get what I'm doing with All American Ruins. I haven't met Josh, but Dylan and I have become acquainted, namely as neighbors. And also because Atlas Obscura is partnering with All American Ruins on a super cool live event that we'll be presenting in
1: September, but more on that later. I grew up in a bunch of different places, but mostly in Minneapolis, Minnesota.
0: As my chat with Dylan continues, my nervousness quickly subsides, mainly because Dylan is so down to earth and smart and super fucking funny. I mean, as we're talking, I'm listening to him wax poetic and I'm thinking, man, I gotta share this guy's story. Friends, meet
1: Dylan. There are very clear aspects of my childhood. And teen years. I don't know that I quite realized how much they were influencing what I ended up doing until I've looked back at it. But as a kid, that had a lot to do with travel with my parents, which was just road trips driving around the Midwest for like hours and hours and hours and days and days at a time. Vacation. That wonderful American institution of going new places and doing new things. The vacation baggage is all packed, and the family car is in tip-top shape. My parents were pretty young. My mom was 19 when I was born. My dad was 23. It was a big surprise. By the time I was like 10, 11, they were just in their 30s, maybe their late 20s still for my mom. They were cool and trying to do interesting stuff. So when we did big road trips, we'd stop at weird and unusual places. I mean, I think that's a part of a lot of people's classic road trip experience. We would do these trips to like Mount Rushmore and the more kind of like official stuff. But you'd stop at Wall Drug, which is like the famous roadside attraction nearby. You'd go to the Corn Palace in South Dakota. Giant building covered in corn. It is what it sounds like. And I remember really, really distinctly on one of these trips. I had to be around 12 years old. We stopped at a place called the House on the Rock in Wisconsin it's in the woods. It is unlike any place I have ever had ever been before, or to be honest, have ever been to since. It's a a singular place in the world. And it takes hours and hours to get through. It has a giant carousel, the center of it, the largest indoor carousel in the world, most diverse set of carousel animals. It has a, a, a sculpture of a squid fighting a whale the size of the Statue of Liberty inside the building. It has a giant collection of houses. it has one of the largest collections of automated musical machines and mechanisms you know you like put a quarter in and this whole room starts to like play a symphony except everything is like fallen into disrepair so it's all atonal kind of terrifying it's a incredible very unusual distinct place for me as a 12 year old it just was like what is this this is like nothing i've ever seen before
0: I went ahead and checked it out online. He's not kidding. It's like nothing I've ever seen before either, and for the pop culture nerd in me, it was fun to read about. Like how in 1997, 10,000 Maniacs shot the music video to More Than This at the House on the Rock. Or how it makes an important appearance in Neil Gaiman's American Gods. Really, the only difference between then and now is that there's a nearby bougie golf course and resort affiliated with it. Apparently, 2004 presidential candidate John Kerry rented out a chunk of the resort before his debate for preparation. He would go on to lose the election, making way for George W. Bush's second term. But I digress. <laughs> The origin of Dylan's eventual co-founding of Atlas Obscura had both roots in his family life and with his friend group.
1: As a teenager, I was a straight edge kid. I like dabbled very early when I was like 13 in drugs and alcohol. But my best friend immediately ended up in N.A. and we couldn't hang out if I was still doing any of that. So I was just like, okay, I'll stop. I just wanted to like hang out with the cool kids. And so I was like, oh, cool. Like, I'll stop all that. I could call myself straight edge, which made me sound more tough, but in fact, I just it was good cover for actually I you know, I was I could kind of feel that it was like felt dangerous to me.
0: As it turns out, Minneapolis was a hip hop safe haven in the early 90s when Dylan was in middle and high school. And alongside this underground hip hop community was a community of graffiti artists. Dylan was one of them.
1: So I was not spending those years drinking and getting high and doing kind of n- normal teenage hijinks. I instead got really into graffiti. Rhymesayers was this pretty well-known hip-hop group that kind of was the core of a lot of that. So in that period, being really into graffiti and starting to explore the city through that was really influential on me. I graduated high school in 1999. Tail end of the millennials. We grew up, we had computers in the house, but they were not very important to me. And I didn't get a computer until I like went off to college and like had to get one. And then I like also got an email account for the first time, you know, 2001 or, um, yeah, I did not grow up in a kind of, highly technologically mediated world. We actually didn't own a TV either. When I was 13 or 14, we like had a TV finally. And none of that was like a super central part of my experience growing up.
0: I was the same. We didn't really get a TV until after my parents divorced in 2000 at the end of my sixth grade year. And if you've listened to this podcast, you know that I grew up in the foothills of the Rockies and had unlimited access to an abandoned dairy farm where the entire All-American Ruins universe began, where my deep love of imagination began, where my deep love for storytelling began, where me, the artist, began. As Dylan told me more about his childhood, the more he made sense to me and the more I identified with his story as a small kid who did nothing but daydream and wander and make up stories and little songs as I'd explore my little world.
1: As a 13-year-old who loved art, who loved to draw, who, because I was not doing a partying thing, like maybe looking for some something that had a little a little adventure, a little danger to it. I had a f- couple other friends and we started out the first like graffiti that I ever did. I was sleeping over at a friend's house. I had to be like 13 and we snuck out. We walked like two blocks to a park, did very bad, lame graffiti on the inside of the wooden ring of like an ice skating rink. I, I, it was thrilling, it's exhilarating. But the thing that I, I loved about it and the thing that I think is relevant to what I do now is it was a way of seeing and exploring the city once you had eyes for that world everything in the the city sort of started to transform so you would see other other people other pieces other tags whatever and you just knew there was like a story there you like knew who that was you would go like how did they how did they get up there like that's crazy how did they paint that how did they get away with that And and then it also just sort of by necessity forced you into these corners and cracks of the city that you just wouldn't go to otherwise. You were going out into the industrial district of the city and finding big, old, abandoned buildings and going in and painting there because that's like where everyone would go and paint. There's a building in particular and an experience in particular that was very important to me and central to my time uh, in Minneapolis, as abandoned flour mill called Goldmetal flour.
0: Mothers have been baking memories with gold metal for four generations. Gold metal's the flour that gives you a white thumb.
1: Does more for you. And it was huge. It was nine stories tall.: It had once been like one of the biggest flour mills in the country, abandoned on the Mississippi. And it was this central place. People would just paint every floor covered in these like incredible pieces and there was always this cat and mouse game going on where like how did you how could you get in you know they put a fence around and someone would immediately cut the fence and they put up plywood on the thing and someone would break the plywood and then eventually they really put up metal and then someone figured out oh actually if you climb up this side of the building right here not very far jump and you grab that fire escape it's it's a weighted one so it pulls down and then everyone like scampers up the fire escape it like clangs up and you like run into the building besides the incredible art inside of it and all this history you were just in this other world there were these huge cutouts in a number of the floors like giant holes in the floor like 10 feet across you knew not to walk. You had to kind of, you know, you kept your wits about you. You'd go up and up and up, and then you could get onto the roof. There was a whole half of a, half the building was effectively inaccessible. Only the most, like, serious, crazy kids got over to that side of the building. Because it was like a true, like, gonna fall on you ruin. But it was also where the giant gold medal flower sign was. Hey, hey. I spent a lot of time there. I painted a bunch of stuff there. I brought my grandmother there once when I was like 15. I brought my grandmother there and like showed her around. <laughs> Very wholesome. One of my like most treasured memories of my Minneapolis delinquent childhood is, it's 4th of July. Fireworks are let off right by that building. There's a, a the Stone Arch Bridge, famous big old bridge. Everyone comes and gathers there and watches fireworks above the Mississippi. That building had a ton of security around it for 4th of July. It's just like extra fences, extra police. But I was with a couple friends and we were like absolutely dead set on getting to the roof. We were like, of course, like we're gonna be like at eye level with the fireworks. This is gonna be so amazing. So we biked over, we lock our bikes up. I remember waiting and actually watching police officers move and then running. And we got in, we made it into the building. We didn't get caught. We go up to the roof and there's already like 30 people up there. Everyone has had the same idea. And it's a really like diverse set of people. Teens our age, but like people, I guess I thought they were like really old. They were probably like 32 years old. But at the time I was like, oh, there's like adults up here too. This is crazy. Drinking beers, hanging out. It's basically just a pleasant time. We all watch the fireworks together. It is actually incredibly spectacular. The fireworks are just like right in front of us. You can see all the crowds below you. You can see the river. And then later, when it was all over, we went, we got our bikes. We biked like way across town to, to an area called St. Louis Parks, And then we snuck into a um, water park that was closed for the night. And we just played around in the pools. I, I realized that night that um, the slides don't work when the park's not open because water has to be pouring down the slide for it to work. So we like climbed up, got on the slide and just went like all the way down. It was like one of those summer nights. That like, you're just like, oh, this is like a special experience. Yeah, that was, you know, that was like a important part of my childhood. And that sense of exploration, that sense of possibility, a little bit of a sense of risk and danger. And then just these spaces, these spaces that it felt like lived outside of everyone else's reality and no one else had access to. And... And they just felt like little kingdoms, you know?
0: For about a week, I seriously considered renaming this podcast to Little Kingdoms, but that would be artistic theft. Little kingdoms, that's exactly right. I've referred to them as my private sanctuaries, places that nobody else can see, places where in our imagination we can tell any story we want to and in turn create memories, real stories that become the very real mythology of our lives. Those stories we tell our grandkids when we're older, attempting to share the valuable resource that is the oral history of a lived experience. But they're also places that, as my homegirl Rebecca Solnit points out, become the unconscious of a city, its memory unknown, darkness, lost lands, and in this, truly bring it to life. Where reality can really, really set in. Now, we can all fall in love with our cities and towns and counties through the romantic lens of abandoned spaces, sure. But they also offer a unique, underbelly look at the story of a place.
1: You fall in love with these spaces you fall in love with your city with the history of it um you know and of course you know you also see the 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 dark side of it because your fellow travelers are people who are homeless who are itinerant who are kind of pushed out into the edges and so it's it's it just it is it is a fuller view in some ways of a place everything looks totally different There is something that I find very... Uh, you said something to me the other day about the the freedom and the magic you feel when you let yourself kind of wander, get lost, truly. Not, it's such a cliche, like, oh, is that you know, whatever. But, like, we don't actually make a lot of time for it in our lives. I t- 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 Currently, I am not making enough time for it. I feel that, actually, quite distinctly. And, and you know, that feeling of open discovery and the kind of mythologizing you do when you're in that space I think it's what you were talking about with this sort of what's behind the door not super long ago I went on a walk I was walking on the the rail trail and then I knew that there's this place Iron Mountain is this kind of slightly sketchy totally fascinating like document storage space there is a path you can take that walks over the roof of the iron mountain facility keeps going find all these abandoned ruins of various old cement operations you know an old house kind of rotting away eventually you end up walking to um the widow jane mine that's like the end of that little kind of traverse and I just remember doing that walk, and the whole time, your head fills with both the what the actual history might have been and with an interest in kind of the real story, but also with all the kind of possibilities of the space, the possibilities of that particular journey. I thought about, oh, I'm going to take people here, and then we're going to have a little party over here, and then we're going to go, and we're going to end up in the mine, and we're going to do this whole—and yeah, it's still, like, kicking around in my head until—I haven't actually done it, but— There is something about the mythologizing of your environment that is really, it is romantic, it is rewarding.
0: Something I've learned over the course of my time building all-American ruins is that oftentimes people give me that look when I try to explain why any given abandoned building is so interesting to me. This look that's like, oh, wow, crazy. How kooky. What a kooky dude you are for exploring the raptured lake ruins of America. I get it. I I get it. A lot of people don't get it. (laughs) But when I discovered Atlas Obscura for the first time, I felt like I'd found my
1: real community. Josh is my co-founder of Atlas Obscura. There is this long tradition of covering the weird and unusual. Ripley's Believe It or Not, Guinness World Records, this kind of thing. And it is almost always done from the perspective of a normal, quote unquote, normal person looking down and kind of saying, oh, isn't this so weird? Isn't it so creepy? And in travel media, especially anytime, anything like this was covered, it was covered in what I and Josh found to be the most uninteresting possible way like oh somebody did this really wacky thing they built this crazy so zany you know and it's like okay such a boring reaction tell me about it tell me about the person tell me about why it exists and don't tell me what to think about it just tell me about the thing and and that was important and because the site was built in a UGC a user-generated content model where people could submit stuff and write their own version of the story. And then we would fact check it and edit it. You know, we wanted to kind of get the balance of, of all of these things. But it just opened up a possibility for people to tell stories about places in a way that we didn't find existed at that moment. It's why we wanted to make it because it's the, these are the kinds of places that we both love to travel to. And we just wanted to write about them in a way that dealt with them on their own terms. Abandoned places, medical museums, cemeteries, all of these things that are deeply fascinating and gave them the respect that they deserved. Truth is stranger than fiction. This is the truth. This is Ripley. Believe it or not. Wilhelm von Hornsalleren, the ex-Kaiser, was reputed to be... Josh and I started it when we were in our mid-20s. Josh ran a blog. This was in the early days of blog. He ran it anonymously. It was called the Athanasius Kirker Society. It was based around this Jesuit priest from the 1700s who was like this crazy polymath, super wild, curious weirdo. He like lowered himself into a volcano to learn about volcanism. He studied all of this, like, whatever. He's just a really interesting person. I was working as a video editor. I worked for like many months, seven months on a documentary about Paris Hilton. I didn't go into it knowing this, but basically it's a big, big fluff piece, basically. So I I was burnt out, and I was pretty nude in New York. I'd only been there for like a couple of years, two and a half years. Michelle, my wife, and I were, were planning this big trip to go live in Budapest. And I ended up with this like long period of time, like six months, to kind of just like I wasn't sure what I was doing with. I was doing a little freelance work, but I had some time to kill. And at some point, Josh put on this blog, like, I need someone to help me put on this event. And I wrote him an email, and we met up, and then he pretended like I was one of many candidates, which I found out literally many years later that I was the only person who wrote him. We pretty quickly hit it off. We found we just had kind of similar interests. We put on this big event. It was like, wow, that went great, this was amazing. We We sold out the house. At this moment in time, this is like 2005-ish, 2006, 2007, the internet felt really different. It actually felt so exciting. I know it's going to be hard to believe, but most of the internet was at that point people's like weird blogs. It was their passion projects. You could just explore and explore and explore, and there was a kind of thrill at just seeing other people explore their own curiosity and their own passion that was really infectious and really made you feel like, oh, wow, it's not entirely gone. There are still aspects of it. There's still ways in which it shows up on social networks like TikTok. There's still tons of creative people out there, but the overall ecosystem is so much more punishing and so much less delightful. Anyway, so we started talking because I was going on this big trip, We started talking about travel, started talking about maybe making a resource for all of the kinds of things we were interested in. And, and that's where Alice Obscura was born. And then from then to now, I don't know, we figured out how to become a business and like now I'm more businessy than I thought I would ever be in my life. But it's a big operation we've got like 60 people, we run trips all over the world, we do a podcast, we publish books. And I think it has been both very gratifying in the amount of new experiences and new types of creative projects that I've gotten to be involved in. And I've also just had to learn a lot about the realities of trying to run a business, doing it completely on our own at first with zero money and everything had to be completely figured out. And I just remember those early years waking up in just a cold sweat, being like, okay, we're not getting paid for like three weeks. What are we going to do? There was that period. And then we, you know, we also got lucky because I think we sort of came of age during a tech hype cycle. Um, So there was money around. And so we were able to get some money um, to help grow the business and sort of gone through various iterations of that. And that is a whole world onto itself. And here we are today. We started this thing really as an art project. We were just wanted to find an audience. We just wanted to like be like, this is our lens. We want to share it. We think the world is so exciting. We think it's so interesting. We think it's so surprising. Come engage with it.
0: The central tenet of this teeny little project I've been working on for three years now is that our imagination is an unmitigated space of healing and sanctuary. And it has become a spiritual, the focal point of my spirituality. And so as far as Dylan Thuris is concerned, where does your imagination serve a purpose for you, if at all? And do you agree that actually the imagination is probably the single most powerful tool that humans have at their disposal
1: for free i certainly believe that imagination there is no way to understate it it is actually the totality of human existence i think sometimes people say imagination and they like put a box around it and they think like painting and like art and then like the other stuff is somehow not that every single thing we have ever done as human beings it begins in imagination but begins with the kind of internal hypothesis i wonder if this is possible we can imagine ourselves in infinite existences and we do we like live in infinite existences every time you read a book you step into a different existence for a moment you have all of these ways of transporting yourself uh, mentally and and then if you're going and exploring abandoned buildings physically and and that and those things kind of combined in a really powerful way. I love the sci-fi fantasy. I love all of that stuff. I get a lot of joy from building completely artificial worlds. You know, oh, you're all on the back of a dragon. It's a casino and you're whatever. Um, and uh, but but I but I also just really want to give people this world, like this world, the world we're in is as weird and surprising and wondrous and and mysterious as anything you can ever dream up it is here we are in it we can move through it but we have to kind of craft that same willingness to 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 build a way of of seeing if you it's it, the world will collapse on you if you don't make those extra, rooms in it.
0: If you're just tuning in for the first time, then again, welcome to Abandoned, the all-American Ruins podcast. The entire first season is available now, wherever you get your podcasts, and season two comes out this September. Oh, and speaking of September... Remember when I said I'd tell you more about the exciting live event I'll be doing with Dylan then? Well, you heard it here first. For the first time, All American Ruins will be doing a live show in partnership with Hudzi, Atlas Obscura, and the Widow Jane Mine. We'll be producing a multimedia experience inside the mine on Saturday, September 23rd. I would love for you to join us. To learn more and purchase tickets, just head over to allamericanruins.com or follow me on Instagram at allamericanruins. Abandoned, the All American Ruins podcast is written, edited, produced, and hosted by me, Blake File, with studio space courtesy of Radio Kingston, WKNY, AM 1490, FM 1079 in Kingston, New York. Special thanks to Ida Hakala, Jimmy Buff, and Manuel Bloss for the resources and encouragement, Carrie Donahue and the faculty of the SUNY Stony Brook Audio Podcast Fellowship for the guidance and mentorship, and to Mr. Dylan Thuris for sharing your story with us. Thanks, man.